All right, all right, all right. Welcome back to the Misfit Nation. Oh, man. Get ready for your feast this week and enjoy your family time on Thanksgiving here in the United States. We talk about being resilient all the time here, and many guests have shared their techniques to master the art of resilience. Today, we bring you another one. He got caught on the wrong side of the regulatory legislation and paid the price for it. He spent time in the last castle outside Kansas City and is now building his life back. So without further ado, let's get Brent Cassidy on here. Brent Cassidy from St. Louis, Missouri. How are you, Brent? Rich, how are you? Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Hey, no problem. Thank you again for your uh, technology uh, resilience here with me. We're (laughs) we're battling it together. Hey, Rich, nothing's ever easy, right? No, no easy day. (laughs) (laughs) So, Brent, I went through your bio on Podmatch, and I see it's an awesome uh, journey that you went through, you've gone through in your life, and some very hard times, and you've been able to uh, use resilience and a, a good optimistic mindset to make it through the other side. Would you be willing to share some of your of your backstory from how it all started to where you went to where you are now? Yeah, and I, I appreciate you letting me talk about this, Rich, because I do think, you know, there's that old um, Henry Ford quote that I, I think is so good. He says, is whether you think you can or you can't, you're right. And, you know, so much of what we go through in life, I think, is is all about mindset, because I think. Everybody, regardless of their situation, that they have life experiences that they build an invisible prison in their own minds. And it, it, whatever those daily obstacles are, you know, they're, 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 something's not allowing them to take this next step. You know, they get stuck. And it's all about, you know, figuring out that next step. How do you get to the next step, that unknown step? And, uh, I just I've never written a book and I wrote a book and I'm getting ready to have that come out here uh, in January. It's called Nightmare Success. And when I was thinking of the title of the book, I was thinking that those two words people don't think go together. But they the more you think about it, they actually do, because everything you want to do in life is usually on the other side of fear or the unknown. And if you can figure out whatever that is, that grit, that feel that you have that I got to get there. I got to get to the next step somehow, some way, whatever's going to happen. I'm going to make that happen. I'm not going to just stay stuck here. I'm not going to fall back into whatever. And I, I think those two words actually reflect a lot of what people have to go through to get to where they want to be. And you read a lot of different books out there and, and there's not one guy out there that's made it. Says, you know, it was just easy. I woke up and all of a sudden I was just fantastically happy and and successful and everything just fell into my lap. And you know, it just doesn't happen. And my life, you know, I lived, I lived, Rich, and I'm not, you know, I I lived a very good life. I was, um, I grew up as a kid in Springfield, Missouri, and and Springfield's a great place to grow up as a kid. You know, it's 45 minutes from Branson. You got Table Rock Lake and I had great friends and, and, uh, you know, I was really into sports and, and oddly enough, I grew like in seventh and eighth grade to be six foot one. So I thought I was going to be like a seven footer. I was like a seven footer in sixth (laughs) grade, but I was really into sports. And one of the reasons I was really into sports was I had a dad that was really just bigger than life for me. He was, you know, he, he had gone uh, to Missouri state was used to be called SMS and he played basketball and it was track. And then he got out and he was number one in his law school class. And he, he got into businesses and everything he did just seemed bigger than life. I was like, Oh man, I I do. I want to make this guy proud, but man, I idolize him so much. He's such a, he's such a big figure. And, you know, his connection, my connection when I was growing up was always, you know, you know, him taking, loosening his tie when he got home and I'm me shooting baskets and him kind of walking me through game situations. And that's how we connected. Um, but as we got older, um, you know, I, I probably ought to back up a little bit cause I did have a little hiccup there in this, 
this life I was talking about that was normal. Well, there was one thing that wasn't so normal. Um, as my dad grew and got into these different businesses, um, you know, he got into a lot of different businesses. He was young. He was in his early 30s. And he came to my brother and I one night and said, listen, I've got to talk to you. Um, I've gotten myself into a heck of a jam. And it's happened with the bank that I own. And and uh, it's probably my own ego. You know, I told him I'd run the bank and they could run the government. And that didn't end up well. And instead of me fighting this thing all the way out and I'm going to, I'm going to plead. And, and they say, I'm going to get probation and, and we're going to go and move on as a family. And, and we're going to move to St. Louis, which to me, I didn't know which one was bigger. The guy that I idolized telling me that he was being indicted or that I was leaving this wonderful world that I lived in, you know, with my grandparents, you know, down in Buffalo, just 27 miles down the street, having their shoe store and the farm and all my friends and all this. And I was getting ready to go to high school. I don't know if that was bigger, leaving my favorite place in the world or moving to the unknown of St. Louis. And then also not having my dad, because what happened was, is they told him he was going to get probation, but when they got to the hearing, it wasn't probation. They wanted him to serve time. So he ended up serving six months. And so when we made that move to St. Louis, um, we, we got settled and, and, and he, he went and served uh, six months in Marion which in a world of um, strangeness as a teenager, you know, when you move somewhere new and the dad's not there, the question is, well, where's the dad? Is he, you know, is he dead? Did they divorce or whatever? So we were always kind of in a mixed up conversation. We just said that he was away working and he'd be back. But when he returned, uh, he had saved one company out of all the companies and uh, he put it in a trust that was Rhonda, Brent, and Tyler. That's my mom and, and Tyler and me. And so that was the company he didn't lose. And that company was called National Pre-Arranged Services. And it was a newer type concept company. It was uh, the FTC had come out where you, you could itemize the things in a funeral home so you could actually go to somebody's home and, and actually pick out the services you want ahead of time and prepay for it and freeze the price. And the idea was is that that husband and wife or the partners wouldn't have to go to the funeral home alone to make all those difficult to get decisions to without each other, they can make them together. And so it was a nice concept. It was, it was something that people should do if they can. Um, and that company continued to grow. And, you know, my, my life was, you know, I'm going to, I kind of got into the fact that I, I wanted to be an attorney and uh, I got into theater and all these different things. You know, I was going to be this great trial attorney. Well, I had a heck of a time with the LSAT. I never could take a standardized test. You know, I had a 3.2, 3.4 grade point average. But, man, I had I to this day, I can't take standardized tests. So I hit a fork in my road and I had to decide what I wanted to do because uh, I wasn't able to get into the law school, even with the grade point average. And so I had to figure out what I was going to do. So I sat down with my dad and um, I had been doing some sales with him over the course of uh, this, uh, the summer because we had come up with a new idea in the company of life stories. And I, when, what that was is sitting people down, talking to them about their life, filming it, going through their old photos. And then we would store that and give that to the family. We later actually made that go into cemeteries with touchscreen consoles so that you could visit the cemetery and actually meet your grandfather, meet your grandmother, not just have the date of birth, date of death, but you could actually see their story when the visit happened. As later times happen, you could do that on the internet. But I actually sold those videos that summer and, and realized I was pretty good at sales. And I always liked sports. So sales made a lot of sense to me because it didn't matter how old you were. And, you know, if you figured out kind of the system and the training, you could get good at it. And you didn't have to go so many years extra to school or whatever. You could just jump in and start building. So I told my dad, I said, listen, dad, I said, you're the founder of the company. The last thing I want to be, do is be in St. Louis, Missouri. And everybody know that I'm your son and that we 
uh, I've got some kind of special gift here and they're going to always think that. So I said, where could I go in the company, pass fail on my own and see if I can do this? And I'm just Brent Cassidy. He said, well, Brent, you know, he said, I, I like the way you're thinking. He said, we just opened up a place in Austin, Texas. Texas is a new state. He said, we just signed up this new funeral home. He said, you want to go down there and take a shot at that? I said, I'm in. I'm, I'm going to take that. Well, Rich, things worked out. Um, I kind of figured out it kind of felt like sports. I was keeping score. There was a scoreboard. We had a weekly newsletter, all those things. And um, I promoted myself to regional vice president in 10 months, created the biggest team down in Texas. So I had done what I wanted to do. It kind of wiped away that ugly vinegar taste in my mouth of not getting into law school. And I kind of found my way into, I liked it. I liked what we were doing and I liked marketing. I liked sales. The nice thing about it was, is being in a family business, dad didn't like that part of the business. So he had gotten into the, it was always in the finance side. Our company had gotten big enough that we owned an insurance company. We owned a marketing company and we owned cemeteries. So, and Tyler was kind of on the technology side, my brother. So as things go, Rich, the company continued to grow. Um, we continued to expand into different states. And uh, things were really good. And as, as, you, as you go through life, I think, you know, sometimes when things go really good, that's when something really bad can happen. And it comes, it almost just sneaks up on you. And I remember we were driving to um, Nantucket because my, my wife wouldn't fly the dogs. And uh, my parents had a place up there. We went up there every summer and we were driving through the state of Ohio from St. Louis. And, and I was filling up the gas tank and I get this phone call from the president of our insurance company. He says, Brent, he said, I got a really bad phone call. Uh, from the state of Ohio. I kind of looked around because I'm thinking, my God, how weird is that? I'm in Ohio. It's like our third largest state that we produce out of. And he's saying he's just got a weird call from Ohio. But he said that this, this girl called from the Ohio Regulatory Division, Insurance Regulatory Division, and said that uh, she's got some bad information on us and she's going to bring us down. Uh, I about dropped the gas in, in the – I just was oh, – just a, like a shot hot flash went through me because I'd been through this before as a kid, you know, at 15 years old, but never, I was on the outside of it. I'm on the inside of this now. And, and I'm not really sure what he's talking about. And we had had a, a, a our insurance company, I don't want to get too far into the weeds here, but it, a size insurance company we were, it was always good for us to do reinsurance because you could get an A plus rated reinsurer like Hanover, which was a gigantic company. And they take the, they pay you basically for your business and you earn a little bit less on the business and they take the rest. That's the simple way of talking about reinsurance. There had been something that happened unknown to me, but there was something that happened between our company whatever my dad was working on and our attorney where they had taken a bad hit in the market and they wanted to re renegotiate our, our reinsurance agreement. And um, my dad and Howard uh, on their own decided that that wasn't a good idea that we had a really good reinsurance agreement. They didn't want to do that. So anyway, that ended up being the beginnings of taking on a David and Goliath type situation, which never should have happened as things went. Um, with, that started eating our Kaplan surplus, which started getting the eyes of the uh, the other states that we were in. And you never want that because regulators, when they smell smoke, they think there's a fire. So we went through, Rich, I mean, I can't really explain what it's like when you have the regulatory world coming down on you, but there's nothing like it. There's it's it's a it's a weird situation. But the thing that happened with me was is that the one part of the company that I never had any interest in. I hate math. I hate all these things that have to do math. <laughs> and 
now all of a sudden there's, I always just looked at it as our insurance company as a place to dump all that money into that we were making our sales. And that's the way it worked. And I didn't care about what was going on over there. That was dead. Uh, let's welcome back into the show. Brent Cassidy he was talking about his love of math and how the regulatory commissions with the uh, IRS were coming after him. Yes. So as, as I was saying, Rich, there's, there's nothing like that, that time when you are dealing with the government and, and the regulation. And, but as I said, you know, th- this was the one part of the company that I really wasn't that familiar with. And I know that sounds strange because, you know, we own an insurance company, but it's funny in a family business, you get into different roles. So my, I didn't have to be. You know, when you own something and you don't like doing something, you could be in operations and, and marketing. And there's enough of that because we were in 22 states. The insurance side just never was fun or interesting or whatever. But it's just kind of the place where you take the money, you dump it in. But when it all came down to it, we needed a person to speak about uh, what was going on when these regulators were asking questions and they and with the handover arbitration, there had been enough leaked out, even though it was a, a closed panel, that there was something going on. And that was enough. You know, when there's smoke with regulators, they assume there's a fire. So when my dad and Howard Whitner, who was the trustee of our trust and also our attorney, came to me and said, Brent, your dad can't go and speak to these people. He has... You know, it's been a while, but he has a record. That's not going to look good, but we need somebody that can has some ability to talk to people that can tell them what our business is, our system, and how, how we do what we do. And they, they said, I, th- I think we need you to go and talk to these regulators. And that was an intimidating thought because um, regulators – in general are, are intimidating, but the fact of going and talking to insurance regulators when you really don't know a lot about that, they said, no, we can tell you, Brent, what you need to know. And, and, and I got to tell you, Rich, I, even to this day, and it's been, it's been a while now, that's 15 years ago, 14 years ago. I don't know if I think I would have made the same decision of jumping in and, and, because I wanted to prove that I could save the company at that time, you know, our company wasn't a big company, but it was big enough. It was, uh, you know, 400 people that we had. And, and uh, there was a lot of lives that we, I felt responsible for. And however we could get out of this mess, we had to figure it out, had to find a solution to it. There was a lot of days when I thought we had found solutions to it, but in the end, it started sliding the other way and you know really it gets above a certain pay grade when you have what i know is is that we trained really well we had really good uh, people who worked for us and i was always proud of that um i knew that we paid over half a billion dollars in death claims we'd never missed miss paying for a funeral and i knew that the other part of how that was how the difference between, you know, the cash um, valuation of insurance policy and, a, and the face amount and all that, that and, and how that's valued in trust and all those things was confusing. And it was a confusing, um, it was a confusing case. And as, as things transpired, we, we fell into what I thought we were working on a deal Um there was a particular attorney that came in from the regulatory department and just said, no, I'm done with this. We're shutting it down. And they did. And they shut down and, and put it in liquidation. And just like that, we were on the outside looking in. And that's when things even got darker because um, that's when the U.S. attorney wanted to look at this because this dealt with insurance and it dealt with funerals and it dealt with the whole gamut. And it was a national thing. And everything was public too. It was it was a big publicity bonanza. I don't know if 
if you've had anything like that, Rich, that you've ever had any touch of, but there's there's nothing like that. There's you can't change the narrative. You can't talk to anybody and and try to tell them the other side. It just takes on a life of its own. And yeah, I believe it. I believe the whole nation is seeing that right now. You can't have a difference of opinion right now. No, because of what the public believes. So the 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 the, the burden of that is is you've just got to. And and I chose. I told the girls, my daughters, and Julie, just don't watch the news. Just don't don't mess with it because we can't do anything about it. All I can do is try to take a step forward and see if we can get to a better place. And each time I kept taking a step forward, it ended up worse. I I I had gotten an attorney that I liked, and he was. This was you know when everything went down and the U.S. attorney started looking at this, we we had to get defense attorneys and I didn't have very much money. And uh, my mom even had to step in at this time after all these years and all these dollars and all this stuff, I was broke. And so this attorney I had, I really liked his, his wife, as we were getting into the thick of this, she had cancer and died and it put him in severe depression. He couldn't get out of bed. And I, in the middle of all this with this case had to go out and find another attorney. And that was unbelievably hard because a lot of these attorneys were in this case anyway, the good ones. And so that was a mess. As it all went down, Rich, the, I had a choice. I could go to trial and, and given my dad was actually had had the opportunity to go down and talk to the U S attorney. And they said, Hey, if you plea, you know, we don't want anybody. We don't want anybody else. We want you. And you're the kingpin, you're this and that. And if you, everybody else is, and dad said, no, the hell with you guys. We're going to trial. So I never had that opportunity to talk to I never actually talked to anybody. I never talked to a U.S. attorney, never talked to the FBI, never talked to anybody, which is to this day seems odd to me, but it is. Wow. Um, so I had to come to the, to the final grips of, I was in, I finally got indicted. With, with five other people. And the statistics to that are horrible. They're, getting indicted is like getting convicted. 97% of the people that get indicted are convicted or they plea. So we our, our nation has an incredible conviction rate because they, they once you're in the grasp of the United States government versus Brent Cassidy, they can, they've got all the levers and they've got every chapter that works and if that doesn't work, they'll go after this family member, that family member, whatever. Well, I happen to be the son in this deal, and and I had made myself the face of this going and talking to all the regulators. So that's I know that I'm a big boy. I realize what I did, but man, there was there seemed to be a lot more to be told, and there was another narrative to this, but we never got there because in the at the end, my daughters and my wife said, "You cannot go to trial." They're stacking these charges on you. If you went to trial and got, it adds up to 938 years. Wow. And that's on four charges. They stack, you know, for every, for everything that uh, you did in the mail, because they said it was a, an illegal scheme, then they can stack as many of those as they want. That's mail fraud, um, money laundering, any deal that you ever made, because you thought you were doing business and you were growing the business, that all of a sudden becomes illegal. And they can stack every one of those deals on that, every wire that you ever made. So I didn't. And, and the other part of this is the charge that I couldn't get away from. And this is the thing, Rich, that really brought me to my knees. There was a statute that was passed by Congress in 1994 that you cannot allow a, a felon to work in the business of insurance. Uh-huh. 1994. Well, we were well along. 1979 was when we we the company was born. So my dad was well into it. I I had never come to my dad and said, "Hey, Dad, I think you'd be good in this business. Why don't you come with me?" It was wasn't like that. But my point is, is that intent I always thought was part of the deal. When you're in a position of owning a company and having a company, you've got to know the laws. And if you don't know the laws, you're going to get the back end of that law. That was a five year sentence. That carried a five-year sentence with it. And I was an owner of the company. My brother, my mom, and I were owners. So 
uh, I had allowed my dad to work in the business of insurance, but I certainly didn't know that I was doing it with any intent to break any law. But if I went to a trial, there's no way that they couldn't be given instructions that that was a true um, statute that was on the book that was violated. So once I came to that, the daughters said, you're, you're crazy, dad. We're going to lose you forever. I finally realized that I needed to think about this whole picture. We had a family meeting on a phone call because our attorneys have been contacted by the U.S. attorneys and they, you know, as they do, because they don't ever want to go to trial. They were cutting deals. They said, well, you can have this over here and you can have this over here and this will take care of, you know, Tyler and your mom can take care of the girls and Julie. And so all of this was sounding like, okay, then, okay, then all I got to do, I got to plea and and I got to get, I got to get this done. I got to get this over with. In the back of my mind, I started sinking further and further down into the the dark abyss that can I, can I live as an ex-felon? Can I, can I be an ex-felon? Can I go forward as an ex-felon? Am I wired for that? Can my family be around me for the rest of my life as, as a guy that when I walk in the room, I'm an ex-felon? They were out of town. We were on the phone and I was supposed to go plea the next day. And I had had way too much to drink that night, Rich. And I decided you know, the best way to just beat this is Julie, my wife, needs to go on and get a, a clean bill of health and, and go on. The girls don't need the stain of her, their dad being an ex-felon. I'm just going to end it. It's over. I've done all I can do. I sat down and wrote a letter of all the things that I loved about my life and my friends and how much they supported me. And I wanted the girls to have a clean slate. And I gave them advice on how they should go forward with their, their future husbands and everything else. And I wrote all that out and I went downstairs in my drunken state, started the car and didn't realize if I was just going to sit in that garage or if I was going to drive somewhere into a tree. And something like hit me through it like a lightning bolt. And I realized that that's not me. I don't I don't I don't think that way. I I don't I've never thought that way. I'm always trying to figure out the next way out. Uh, I can't be remembered for this. This will make me look weak. I can't, I can't, what in the world am I thinking? So I turned off the car. And at that point, I hit the total rock bottom. And I said to myself, whatever happens, whatever I do, I'm not going to be a victim in this situation. I am going to be a survivor and I'm going to stand up and, and I'm going to step forward and whatever I got to deal with, I got to deal with it. However that looks, it looks. So I got to sentencing. And um, so, Rich, the room was absolutely, it was like a movie. The place was packed. There was all kinds of news and people all over the place. And a judge up there with the three-ring binder, and she opens her three-ring binder, and there's six of us that are getting sentenced that day. And the, my dad gets up there, and he's he gets 10 years. Wow. Do you have anything to say, Mr. Cassidy? No. And he sits down. Howard Whitner, my attorney, gets up there. She sends him to three years. And I'm thinking, well, I'm zero to five. What does that mean for me? And so my attorney gets up there. I get up there. And he, he does his spiel. And all these people have written letters. And, and you don't know what any of it means, Rich. You don't, you're just there. And, I, and all of a sudden, she says, I'm sending you to 60 months, five years. And it was like, like like the guts had been taken out, the air was out. I, was, I think there was a gasp that I probably let out my own. I, I was going to all of a sudden be spending five years away from my family, from everything I knew. And it was just, it was, it was a feeling like you can't, you can't get there without ever going there. But I can tell you one thing that was really interesting. All these letters that came in from all these people that had been throughout my life, I got to read those and it was almost like being at your own funeral and seeing and hearing what people, uh, you know, felt about you and friendships and things that you'd done and things that they'd done. And um, that part of it in the darkest hour, I took all those letters with me to prison because whenever I had a down day, I pulled those out and said, no, this is, this is my life. This is me. This is, this is who I am. And, so you, you, you go through a time period there, you get sentenced, then you have this time period where you're, you're waiting to find out where you go. You have no idea. It just shows up in the mail. You open up this envelope and I open it up and it says Leavenworth Prison. 
<laughs> good God. I've heard of Leavenworth Prison. <laughs> it's in the movies. Yes. <laughs> it doesn't sound good. And if you look at it, if you ever want to look at Leavenworth Prison, it looks like Shawshank Redemption. And thank God I wasn't staying in the penitentiary part. I was at the camp. But that you go in, you voluntarily surrender at the Shawshank Redemption place. And there's nothing like going to prison to voluntarily surrender. You know, you, you know, I remember going there and we, we had dinner with my mom and my brother and, and, you know, Julie and I, after we did that, we drove over to Leavenworth to see, you know, what it looked like. And it was weird. I mean, the lights were on, you could kind of see people moving around. You could see people walking around the fence uh, on the sidewalk. And all I was thinking was tomorrow I'm going to be in there. I'm going to be in there for five years, my next five years. And I'm tonight looking at it in a, in a dark car thinking, holy shit. So I remember the, that morning I got up and had breakfast. We, and they said you could bring $200. They could put it on your commissary account. So I went through the ATM, got that. I went through and got drove through and got a Big Mac because I realized that I wanted something really good to eat before I went in because I didn't know what I was going to be eating from then on out. And I remember, you know, I kissed and hugged everybody in the car. And I got out of the car and my brother said, I'll walk with you. We walked up these big steps and I opened the door and I said, I'm here to voluntarily surrender. And I said, we're not doing that here. You go stand down by that gate next to the dumpster. I thought, God, how ironic is that? <laughs> so I get down there. I'm sitting, you know, I'm standing at the dumpster. It's Kansas. The wind's blowing through. It's January 14th, 2014. And I am freezing. And I've, I've, I've left my coat in the car because I didn't want him to have that. So I'm standing and standing and standing. Julie jumps out of the car and she runs with my coat. I said, no, 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 Julie, I don't want that. I want that coat. Just keep it. I'm going to be all right. And that, shortly after that, the big, huge thing buzzes and you they, they yell at you to take a step inside. And then the nether gate opens and they take a step inside. And all of a sudden, you just feel, Rich, this feeling that you, you can't ever really grasp until you're in it. You just walked away from your freedom. Those two gates to where you walk through and then you walk in and they buzz this door and you stand. They say, who are you? I'm Brent Cassidy. I was wondering if there's another Brent Cassidy. Please show up. They buzz you through another gate. They take you to this this long hallway and to a cell, and they don't say anything. That's the first thing you realize is you don't know all information, everything you know or should know, you don't know anything anymore. They slam shut that cell door, and there you are. And I sat there for like three hours. And another guy, then he popped in, and he was, he was coming in the same to do the same thing I was doing, and he was from – outside of St. Louis from Jerseyville and Jay Jones. And, and the weird thing was, Rich, is that he looked at me and he said, he introduced himself. I'm Jay Jones from Jerseyville, super nice guy. He said, he said, I guess you're doing the same thing as me. They volunteering to go into prison. I said, yeah. He said, I got to tell you, man. He said, you look familiar. I'm thinking, holy shit. What's he talking about? He said, are you that funeral guy? I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> he said, well, yeah. I don't want, he said, I don't want to sound weird. He said, but he said, I was on home confinement for six months before I came in here. So he said, I had to be in, inside my house at nine o'clock every night. So he said, I watched the news. He said, that's how he said, boy, he said, they did a number on you guys. And I said, I know, I know. So next thing that happens is you got to, they, they pull you out of that cell. They take you in there, the psychiatrist, they ask you if you, you know, you're, you're, you're feeling like you want to kill yourself. And that's the one thing I'd read is don't tell them that because they'll throw you in the hole and you yep. tell them you're okay. Everything's fine. And then you got a, this lady that shows up and she's, you know, takes, make sure that you are who you are in this big binder. And then they show you, then they shove you back in this room and there, there's this pile of clothes looks like dead people have been evaporated and they tell you to take your clothes off. And I'd read about all this and you bend over and you show them you haven't taken anything and you're just, you're just naked to the world. And then they, they prisonize you. You take, you know, they, he threw me a t-shirt that was 
made me feel somewhat uncomfortable because it had a blood stain on the front of it. These funny elastic pants and these blue shoes that was kind of the your temporary prison garb. So you go back into the cell, you come back and then, you know, you wait a few more hours and then they tell you they're going to take you down to the to the camp. And the first thing that you're thinking all these hours is, is I hope they don't put me in this maximum security and get me confused. But eventually they open you up. We got in a little white van. We went down to the camp and it's kind of like you see in the movies. You know, we walked into this place that looked like a little rundown elementary school is the best I can describe it. And all the prisoners and inmates gather around because this is, you know, something going on new and they want to see who the new inmates are. And you walk in and, and you stand there and everybody looks at you. And I had this guy come up that was tattooed from his neck down and, and his name was Wilson. And he was going to show us um, the, where we were supposed to live. And we went down in this dark dungeon basement you had to walk single file line went down there with some guys sitting on plastic chairs and the ceiling was low and there was a, a kind of a fenced in area and said, keep out. And that's where you got your bedding and your, your fatigue clothes and that. And you know, first thing I found out was we don't have any pillows. Good luck getting that. So, <laughs> so the next thing that happens is we went up to, and uh, Wilson said, uh, where are you, where you, let's see, where you're supposed to be an ATO. He said, oh, you're going to love that. He said, that's the ghetto. He said, well, after you've been here for a while, maybe you'll work your way into the suburbs, and that's B1C1. And he said, you'll, you guys will be in an interesting spot here. So I didn't even know what that meant. You know, none of that made any sense to me. So we walk in there. It's a big open room. There's 50 bunk beds. Everybody's got their own locker and a plastic chair. I kind of, as I walk to get to my bunk bed, you know, I see that there's a bathroom that looks like it's got three showers. It's got six sinks. There's a bunch of people smoking in there and there's three urinals and I'm just continuing to walk. And it's just like a big open concrete cinder block open room. And I get there and this well-built Hispanic guy looks like a boxer. He says, you must be my new bunkie. And I said, I am. He said, well, you look like you haven't been here before. He said, I'm going to have to show you the ropes. He said, first thing you do is we've got to, we've got to make this bed military style because they do. Um, they check on you. The warden comes through every Tuesday and Thursday, and everything's got to be tip-top way it's supposed to be. You can get in trouble. So anyway, I learned how to do the military bed. He said, I'm going to take you over to the guy here. Uh, he says, he's one of you. And I go over there. He introduces me to Jim Clark. I find out that Jim Clark is eight years my senior, went to the same high school as me. We both played basketball. Totally bizarre. Totally bizarre. And I said, I'm so happy that he said, I'm going to help show you the ropes. He said, I'm going to tell you what you need to do. And he said, I'm going to help you find a job. Um, You know, I've been here. He said, I've been here for a year. I said, I heard you can make a phone call to tell your family you're okay. Is that is that true? Because all I was thinking about was Julie and the girls, and they're thinking, you know, you know, I, you know, I've been in this all day long. They're probably wondering what the hell happened. So I went down the counselor, and uh, he was counselor Goodwin, and I knocked on the door, and he says, Ah, oh, he said, new guy. He said, Yeah. He said, What do you need? And I said, Well, I, I heard that you can make a phone call. Can I make a phone call to my family? He said, Sure thing, Ray. He said, uh, what's the number? I said, well, actually, my name's uh, Brent Cassidy. He said, oh, yeah. he says, you kind of look like uh, Ray Romano. So said, <laughs> I'll go with that. I was in total shock. I didn't know what was funny and what wasn't. So I got them on the other end of the line. I said, listen, I'm fine. It's, it's, I've actually made two or three connections. That these guys are helping me. Everything's going to be okay. So... We got off the phone. They, you know, that that was the call I wanted to make to make sure that they were at least knowing that everything I was at least telling them I'm going to be all right. And from there, I'll tell you, Rich, what I did was I thought every situation I've ever been in in life, it's a new situation. You got to set new goals. You've got to figure out your situation and figure out how am I going to live in this deal. And so that night, when I was looking up in my, I was 
at my window in the top bunk and I could see, you know, on, on the hillside, that huge penitentiary all lit up. And I was thinking, you know, it's been six years of fighting this and I'm here, you know, I got to figure out what I'm going to do. And so that night I got out a, a, a pencil and a piece of paper and I could see from the bathroom light enough to write. And I wrote out the five or six things that I needed to do to what I was going to do. I was going to read the most books I've ever read. Uh, I was going to get in the best shape I'd ever gotten into. I was going to get a new prison job that at least I was doing something new. I could learn something. I needed to get into this RDAP program so that I could get a year off and I need to find out how to qualify. Had to figure out how to work the, the phone system and the email system so I could communicate with the outside world. So I wrote that down that night and that's kind of what I focused on when I, you know, it got me, you know, so many guys that I saw, you did it one or two ways, prison one or two ways. There were guys that just gave up and they didn't do anything. And there were guys that uh, would work out a lot. And then there were guys that would stay busy all day and they would go do a job and they would they would keep themselves busy. And that's what I wanted to do. So I was lucky enough that uh, I got a I got a good job uh, up at the food warehouse. And um, that was a probably the, the best job on the on the campus because you got to leave the fenced in area and all the barbed wire. And I chose to walk up. There's about a mile. It's a gigantic warehouse. And uh you got to eat your own food there because it was a food warehouse. Um, I had my driver's license that I didn't realize that that was a good thing when I came in with it. So I got to learn how to drive this gigantic truck down to the camp and unload and do all that. So, I, and I got forklift certified and we, we fed 2000 people a day and it was something that kind of, and we had a place to work out behind the, the big racks. So it was, it was a way for me to try to continue to be me. I, so much of what happens, I think, of guys, and it happens on the outside too, you get institutionalized into um, this routine, and it's probably a bad routine, and, and then you won't get out of that routine. And it's, it's, that's why guys get afraid to leave, is that they get so into this routine that they – are scared of the outside. And if you've seen that, like movies like Shawshank where the, the old guy that has the bird, he gets out, he's afraid and he hangs himself. And there's, or there's um, Morgan Freeman that, you know, he looks at the gun and, you know, could that put him back in? Cause that's what he knows. One of the things that I think that's whether you're in prison or you're out of prison, regardless of your situation, you still have to do things that still make you feel like you're you. You know, there you can't lose yourself or you do become you lose yourself. And that's one of the things I found in prison that you really had to focus on was is and there were there were five rules that that I lived by. And, I, and, and I've kind of lived by when I was in business, but and I and I built things in business by using this. But when I went to prison, I also found out it worked. I, and I'll share those with you, Rich, because um one of the things was, is the first thing is humble yourself and ask for advice. Don't be any bigger than the situation. There, you Just figure out somebody who's making it work and ask them how they're making it work. It worked in my business life and it worked in prison. I, I would find people that I felt like they were making it work, whether they had a, a workout routine or a way that they were getting through. Like, how were they making it work? But humble yourself. Ask questions and 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 find out and incorporate it into what you need to have to make yourself work. Um, in in Shawshank Redemption, you know the, the Zaywantaneo. Everybody needs to have their why. You know Andy Dufresne. He chipped through that wall for twenty years, and that was his goal. He was going to free himself. And in in prison, you even needed that. You needed goals. You needed a plan that would motivate you to kind of chip away at what you were going through so that you didn't get stuck in, in this horrible environment and, and get deeper in to the pit. You had to keep figuring out 
what am I looking at? What am I looking forward to? What am I stepping to? Um, I always was, I had a calendar and it was always win the day, one day at a time. So I, I would find something that happened in the day that I could say, okay, that was okay. That it wasn't, I'm in prison, but it wasn't horrible. I got, I got something out of this, whether I got, you know, learned how to do the forklift or I, I, you know, I was doing something with the garden and I was giving it to the community people once a week. And I was, you know, I was communicating with the outside world, whatever that was, it, you could pick something out of even the worst situation. Say, okay, at least that part of the day was a win. Win the day, one day at a time, unfair things happen, move on and make a difference regardless. Unfair things happen. Just make a difference regardless. Figure out what that one thing is that you can work on that was a win. Learn from your mistakes. Uh, they don't define you, but they sure in the hell make you a lot wiser. Welcome back. Brent Cassidy uh, talking about having that resilient mindset, no matter if you're behind bars or even if you're in the civilian world and industry, not to get too comfortable or complacent in what you do and to challenge yourself to better things. Yeah, and I think, you know, I was thinking back, the thing that I, I had five rules, Rich, that I, I really lived by before I went in, and it really helped me when I was in prison to adapt and survive the those years that I was in. And I wanted to share those with you just as a wrap-up of, of what got me through and, and really is what got me through even after I've gotten home is, number one is to humble yourself. Ask people for advice because – if you see somebody that you, that's doing it or doing it the way you want it, whether it's in business or in life, ask them about it. Use that. And and if you just humble yourself to ask them about it, there's so many times that they're going to share with you what works. And you can incorporate that into what's going to work for you. Um, in Shawshank Redemption, one of the things that I thought was really powerful about Andy Dufresne was is that he he had a goal. And he had a plan. He was going to chip through that wall. It took him 20 years to chip through that thing, but he was going to free himself. And he would reward himself every day by letting those rocks off, at the, the holes in his pockets. And, and each day he was winning that day. You know, he had he knew he was getting closer to where he wanted to be. And that's one of the things I did. Uh, number three was is win the day, one day at a time. Don't get too far ahead of yourself. And I had a calendar and every day I was like, there was something either I learned or there was something that I could call a win. And I, that's what I used to kind of get myself to the next day. Even if it was bad and I'm, I know I'm in a bad environment, I know I'm in prison, I know all that. But the fact of the matter was, is I could find something, whether I learned how to drive a forklift that day or I learned how to do something, I could at least say I'm moving forward and I'm not getting stuck. I'm doing something. Number four. Learn from your mistakes. Those mistakes do not define you, but they do make you a hell of a lot wiser. Don't do the same thing again. Just learn from it so you don't do it again so that you can stay out of that mess. Don't give in. That's number five. Don't give in. Don't give up. Keep being yourself regardless of the circumstances. Otherwise, you will lose you. Whatever makes you you, you don't want that to happen. You want to be, you can become institutionalized on the inside and you can become institutionalized on the outside. So my time in prison was used much like I used it as I was trying to build my life and business and in my life. It just so happened that those things worked for me in prison and got me through. The other thing that got me through is I had family my wife came every weekend. Uh, the kids were at Mizzou and she'd pick up one or two or three of them. And that was unusual. The, not very many inmates had visits. So I was really lucky that way. I was very lucky that I kept my family together. And all I can say is, is Rich, after I went through all that, there was nothing like the feeling of finally the day of knowing that I had gotten through it and they called me and I, I got to put the street clothes on that my wife had sent me and I'd lost 35 pounds. I didn't fit quite as well, but the, the feeling of, Oh my God. And, and being able to, to walk down that hallway and all those people who looked at me when I walked in as a new guy slapping high fives and, and wishing me good luck, you go in there alone, you go out a little different. And when I was able to, 
you know, get in the car and, and hug my kids and my wife. And, and when I say nightmare success, I feel like we lived through and, and conquered and, and was part of nightmare success because we made it. We were able to drive out of there as a family, as a whole. And since then, uh, I think my, my uh, middle daughter, Carly, said, you never know how strong you are until strong is all you have. And I feel like if that's what got our family through it, we leaned on each other, we helped each other, and we got through a horrible situation. And we all know that we can handle those situations going forward if you just keep stepping into it. Whatever that is, whatever that unknown is, there's a there's a way to get through. And that's what I like to call nightmare success. Right. That's a great uh, story of your journey. Uh, you, you touched a lot of great points in there. Uh, one that we say on the Misfit Nation all the time is to be hungry, uh, be humble, stay hungry and keep hustling. Yeah. And that goes right in with what you're saying with nightmare success. You got to be humble in everything you do in life, but you also got to keep hustling. You got to have that. You got to drive. You got to have that drive to move forward and you got to stay hungry. If you're not hungry, like you said, you become complacent, you become institutionalized, no matter if you're behind bars or if you're in your car driving down the road for for a boss that you don't like, you're institutionalized. Yeah. You got to be able to move out and move forward. So thanks a lot for sharing. So true, Rich. So true. I appreciate you having me on. I really do. Hey, no problem. Is Like I said, it's a great story. And how would someone get in contact with you if they want to? Uh, link in with you and maybe talk about nightmare successes it comes closer to coming out yeah i've got uh my email address is uh bd brent douglas bd uh cast 2967 at gmail.com i'm gonna have a fancier one here when i get all my book stuff done but i'm not quite <laughs> there yet i am gonna have a launch of the book um in january uh nightmare success so i hope everybody keeps their eyes out for that and um I, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you, Rich. It was it was a great conversation, and uh, thanks for being on, Brent. And good luck to everything you do in the future. I appreciate it. Thanks, Rich. Have a good one. Thanks. That was great chatting with Brent and hearing his story of following his father's footsteps into business to making an error, paying the price, and growing from it. Be sure to look out for his book, Nightmare Success, coming out in January. So you know how we do this. Thanks for taking some of your time to spend with us on the Misfit Nation. Be sure to hit that subscribe button and share the link as much as possible. If you want to, or if you know someone, have them come on and support us so we can keep this thing moving on. We appreciate you. If you know someone who would bring that energy and has a great story to the show, have them visit our website, themisfitnation.com, and reach out to us. We will get right back to them. As always, till next time, be humble, stay hungry, and keep hustling, because we are the Misfit Nation.